0: So I, I looked at the material, and I have decided that this will be our last series, or our last week of the Kingdom of Heaven series. Um, I want to kind of wrap it up today. And acknowledging that we've got uh, six, seven people here, who've no, eight people here, who have not um, been a part of the series. Um, one, you don't have to have been to the previous ones. I think, actually, this is the best one to do kind of a summation on. Um, I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, and then next next week, I will have a different topic. I'm not really sure what it is yet. I am thinking, someone did ask me this. I'm thinking about doing one on um, colonialism and Christianity. Uh, that's going to take some research, though. So I want to make sure I do that right. <coughs> so maybe next week. Um, so you have your handout, Kingdom of Heaven Values. So that, that word is kind of an innocuous word, values. Um, Actually, we're going to need Bibles for this too. So, you should have a Bible in front of you. Um, and, it, and it'll be mostly to follow along. So, again, values, you see values on your handout here, and that seems like an innocuous word. Um, it's, it's a really big deal, actually, though. If I, and, and this, is, this has been the course of my time with theology and study, studying the text, studying the history, all that stuff. Um, You know, one of the first things we talked about in this series was that when when the word or phrase kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God is referenced in the Bible, it is not talking about a place somebody goes to after they die. So then the, the question is, how do you define what kingdom of heaven really means? If it's not an afterlife destination, then when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, what is Jesus talking about? Oh, I'm going to get in trouble. There are Catholic monks about to walk into our door. Awesome. That's Whoa. not a joke. <laughs> <laughs> hey, brothers. <coughs> that was very, very redneck of me, too. Hey, brothers. Hey, there. Are you guys just wanting to visit the space, or you guys want to join us for our conversation? I was just, we were just curious
1: what unorthodox Oh, yeah, it's yeah. Big You're more than <laughs> well, yeah. You're more
0: than welcome to sit down. Well, we might not be able to sit for the whole thing. That's okay. Um, let me give you a handout. Oh, great! Thank wow. you. Okay. Thanks. Oh, this okay. is so fun. What are your names? Brother Joseph. Brother Joseph. Brother Tim. H-M. Brother Tim. Yeah. Okay. Welcome. Yeah. Thank you. Be comfortable. Um, an, an Orthodox is a kind of a discussion-based service that we do. Um, Kind of going through uh, with a a historical lens, the the context of the Bible. So today we're wrapping up a series on the kingdom of heaven um, and and what is meant by that phrase when it's used in the Gospels. So thank you for joining us. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And if I say anything that offends you, I'm sorry. (laughs) So, uh, Kingdom of Heaven, if it's not an afterlife destination, what is meant? And for me, it's taken a few years, but I finally come up with my own definition of what Jesus means when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven. And that's what that's what this whole thing is today. So, so my definition for what the kingdom of heaven is, is it is God's value system as opposed to the world's value system. So Jesus starts off Mark 1:15, right at the beginning of his ministry. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's, he says, the gospel, the good news is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do you want to hand up? (laughs) Um, And then what that means, what Jesus then spends his ministry, three years of his ministry doing, is bringing this value system of God to the world and and not only living it out himself but inviting other people to participate in it as well and then when Jesus dies and the disciples take on this mantle afterwards that becomes their task is how do they live out this value system and how do they spread that throughout the Roman Empire Um, so like I said values is kind of an innocuous word but it's a big big deal because this is what the kingdom of heaven is all about. So then our task is understanding what is God's value system, or as as Jesus sees it, what is this value system? But also, what is the value system of the world to which Jesus is responding to? And so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 18 and 19 looking at these value systems. And I want you to really think about this as what are the the values that we, maybe we we might not say they're important to us individually, but we can at least say our world, our country, our society is built upon value systems that Jesus is directly um, trying to change. And so then this becomes the task of any Jesus follower. Are are we meant to just get people to heaven after they die? Or are we meant to understand this value system of God, understand the value system of our world, and try to change that, try to bring the kingdom of heaven here now as Jesus does? Um, I know we've got some uh, Jewish people with us too, and and so I definitely want to say this is not something... ...that a person has to be a believer in God to be a part of. This is something that I believe is very accessible to all people. This is the work that I believe um, uh, Gandhi lived his life trying to do. People who are not Christians but of, of even a different faith... ...very much tried to live out the same thing. So I don't want any of this to feel like you have to be a Christian to believe this and do this work... This is something for all of us to understand and determine if it's meaningful for us and try to walk that path as well. Um, one last thing I'll say before I get into this, we can talk about values in an intellectual way, right? And that's kind of, that's kind of um, what I think colleges and, and a lot of you know, well-to-do folks like to do is to talk about things. Value systems become radical when you try to put them into practice. So this isn't just about understanding it with our minds. This is also understanding the way the world is and actually trying to change it. It's, it's, it's walking this as well. And, and it's the path of walking it that becomes radical. And we'll get into that in a moment. Any questions before I go on? Okay. So we're going to start with a story from, uh, two stories actually, from Matthew chapter 18. Uh, let me give you the page number so you don't have to go look at It's only if you want to follow along. I'm going to read this out loud so you don't necessarily have to. It's on page 799. So Matthew 18, verses 1 through 5, and then I'm going to jump over to 19, 13 through 15. They're kind of dealing with the same thing. So, uh, 18, 1 through 5. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? called a child whom he put among them and said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. I'm going to jump to chapter 19 real quick. 13 to 15. It's on page 800. Then little children were being brought to Jesus in order that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples spoke sternly to those who brought them, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not stop them, for it is to such as these that the kingdom of heaven belongs. And he laid his hands on them and went on his way. So there's a value there, and it's not the same value we have with kids. When you think of kids today in our society, um, they're they're practically divine, right? Right. Kids are um, one of the most sacred symbols in our society today. It's hard for us to understand what this text is talking about um, because, of, because of how our society looks at it. In fact, um, you know, I've done sermons of this. Like, my office is right next to the preschool, and I hear the kids and stuff, and it's just like, You'll hear a kid yell at another kid like, "Oh no, you're not coming to my birthday party. We're not best friends anymore." I'm just like that's savage. And then not I'm not kidding. 2 minutes later, the same exact kid, "Oh, I'm sorry. You know, you're my best friend again." And they absolutely mean it. And it's beautiful, right? Kids are so good at being upfront with their feelings and being loving and all of this stuff and they do forgiveness and all of these things that we talk about as adults. I grew up hearing this text thinking, "Oh, well, that's what Jesus means." Jesus means we need to have the innocence of a child, um, and, and that's how we attain the kingdom of heaven. Historically, that's not what's going on, though. Uh, the reason children are being used in this story is because children were the opposite of how we look at them today. Uh, we're talking about a, a context 2,000 years ago where um, the mortal- infant mortality rates and mortality rates of children were exceptionally, exceptionally high. And and you gotta understand the psyche here. If you have parents who are going to lose children for whatever reason, it, it tends to bring down the value of that child because you're preparing yourself for the potential of losing that child, either either through labor stuff or through um, you know poor immune systems and illness and stuff like that. They didn't have medicines that we have today. So it was very common for children to die. That's number one. Number two. Stop looking at me like that. (laughs) Uh, Number two is that children had absolutely no economic benefit. In fact, it was the opposite. All they did was drain resources, right? Um, Parents had a lot of children in antiquity because that's free labor, right? Well, it's also
2: the retirement
0: plan. It is their retirement plan. (laughs) But it's also um, it's also it's a number. It was a numbers game in antiquity. Uh, you have as many children as possible because, one, you're going to lose some of them. As sad as that, I know, Livier, I know.
2: <laughs> She's so sad as I'm talking about this. <laughs>
0: um, you're going to lose some, and so you need to make sure that you've got the numbers on your side. Um, and, and then, two, once they get old enough to work, then they have an economic value for the household. And that right there is a big thing. So children were considered extremely insignificant in antiquity, because they were an economic drain, because they they couldn't serve a purpose until they reached a certain age. Um, There's a story that John Dominic Crossan references. This is uh, is an ancient, it's not a made up story. This is an actual letter where um, uh, there's a couple, a man, he's overseas uh, doing work for the family. His wife is pregnant. And he writes back to her, you know, they don't know, you don't know what kind of baby you're having until the baby comes out. And, and he literally tells her, if it's a boy, keep it. If it's a girl, toss it. Because a woman also is not going to have economic value until you can marry her away. And you, you hear that value right there, and that's horrific. That's a very heartbreaking thing to conceptualize in our society today. Um, but that's how children were looked at. Uh, the value system here is that we're dealing with a world that is very, very hierarchical. Right? So you not only have uh, the Roman emperor, priests, and military generals at the way top, and then this massive chasm, we talked about this the first week, this massive chasm, and then you have the peasant class artisans and the untouchables at the way bottom. That's the hierarchy right there. But the, the, the purpose that hierarchies also served in antiquity was that even at that bottom part of the social ladder, That was hierarchical, too. So the peasant class was above the artisan class. Men were above women. Uh, Mothers were above their children. So even if you're dealing with people who live in poverty, they're still organized hierarchical. Does that make sense? And this hierarchy was law. This is how the world operated. So then we have this story where the disciples ask Jesus, who is the greatest? Essentially what they're asking is for Jesus ...to give his endorsement of a hierarchy. They are asking Jesus to come into the current world's value system... ...and rank them, and participate in it. And instead of doing that, instead of saying, oh, well, Peter, you're the greatest. You're the one that I'm going to build my church on. He completely flips it on his head, and he grabs the most insignificant person he can... ...a child, and says, this is the greatest. So we're dealing with a hierarchical value system, and Jesus is then radically flipping it on his head. Now, intellectually, that could be a really nice story, right? Jesus, the value system, the kingdom of heaven value system, is a radically egalitarian value system. How does our world operate today?
2: It occurred to me when I read this that uh, one of the things that's going on is tribalism is still very present, civilization is moving to more settled. And evolution um, of society and evolution biologically, um, you know, I think he's saying that children are the future of our species, <coughs> and uh, so I, I'm just trying to wrap my head around some of that, that, that um, children here and now are the, are the future and that what we have, what we, the value that was being pushed back against was sort of a, um, a kind of social Darwinism. Yeah. And I think that we see that here now. Mm-hmm. The, a very much of a social Darwinism, where if you're privileged and rich, you survive, and if you're not, you don't. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, it's clear, you know, from anthropology that some of the major advances of our species uh, came from children, not adults. Language, yeah, probably came from children.
0: <coughs> That's it. I like that. Thank you, Steve. Uh, what else? I mean, I to think about that. How is our world organized today?
2: What's the patriarchy?
0: It's patriarchal. Hmm. Livier. Money. Money. Hmm. Um, and, and getting worse. We're watching uh, concentration of wealth mm-hmm. uh, go to the top. Right. More and more and more. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, yeah. Division of rich and poor is just getting wider.
0: It, it is. Um, you think of, so I, I give this example of, of like Roman society where Rome was at the top then there was this massive chasm and then there was like the peasants, the artisans and the untouchables at the bottom. Mm-hmm. And th- these are all people living uh, on a daily subs- 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 sustenance level. They're they're basically working for what they can feed themselves that day and they have no way of knowing what's going to happen the next day. That's it's that level of poverty. But even there, there's a hierarchy happening. Um, and and you look at today, even within our own levels of low-income folks, that hierarchy still exists, right? Mm-hmm. We still see a uh, uh, patriarchy mm-hmm. at, at lower levels. Mm-hmm. Um, we still see things organized by who's got what job. We sponsor a we sponsor a migrant community in Santa Maria. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are these are folks that come from Mexico to work the farms in Santa Maria, except. They're Oaxacan. They don't speak Spanish, they speak Oaxacan. They are marginalized by the migrant workers who speak Spanish. Of course. Wow. So we're dealing with people who all, they all live in poverty, but the Oaxacan workers are even marginalized by the Spanish-speaking Mexican workers. So hierarchy serves a purpose at all facets of society. Especially if you're talking about people who maybe are feeling powerless because of what's above them as far as wealth and power, et cetera. And then, and then you give them a little tiny bit of space to exert whatever power they do have. Mm-hmm. Um, this is why you see women in abusive situations at, at lower levels, mm-hmm. and this is why you see like the Oaxacan community being marginalized, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, th- so then you take that. So that's our world, right? Um, and then this isn't, like I said, this is not intellectual. Jesus is is presenting the value system of God for him, this is what Jesus believes, which is radically egalitarian. It is it is meant to upend any kind of a hierarchy. And, and 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 that's not the work that the church is performing today, right? Churches don't spend time trying to make the world a more equitable egalitarian space. The, the, the areas where you do see the church do this marvelously has been with liberation theology down in Latin America and the black church here in, in our country, um, very much living out this kind of value system. Steve? Just the, um, the
2: trickle-down economics and the idea that markets are going to solve socioeconomic problems At the core of that, I think, is a a sort of social Darwinism and elitism that says um, if you're doing well, uh, that's good for you, and if you're not, it's your fault.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about Christianity's influence in this, right? So let's just say for a moment, in in an ideal world, the work of the church, the world of of Christianity, there's, what, 1.7 billion Christians in our world. Let's just say the work of every single one of them is to to make the world a more equitable and egalitarian space. The world would change overnight with those kind of numbers, right? Um, However, a lot of Christian theology is is what? Individualistic. It's about a personal relationship with God. And it's about getting somewhere after you die. Now, with that kind of theology, you remove the motivation for the church to actually create this kind of value system. It, the, the, the whole purpose of the church's work has been shifted, mm-hmm. which is why you see uh, 1.7 billion Christians in the world not making the kinds of changes that Jesus is talking about here. Mm-hmm. Um, how many of you are familiar with the prosperity gospel? Right, so prosperity gospel is the idea that if you are materially uh, affluent, it's because God has blessed you with that. Mm-hmm. This is Joel Osteen, right? Um, your wealth, your place on the social ladder, is because God has put you there. So not only is not only is the church not participating in this egalitarian work, it's actually helping firm up the hierarchy by saying you are blessed, by, you need to try to get up here because that's that's a sign of your uh, your your blessing.
1: Um,
2: and if you're not
0: there.
1: Enough, yeah.
0: yeah, and if you're not getting there, it's because you're not faithful. You're doing, there's something wrong with you. you know? And it relies upon that kind of view
2: of, of, of society that there are lower people and higher people. Mm-hmm. There are people who are better off and there are people who are poor. Yeah. It requires that to make sense. Yeah. Now, most people don't
0: understand the history of Christianity in America because we just don't go back that far and it's really not that sexy. <laughs> but, um, Right now, I would say Christianity is characterized more prominently in in media, et cetera, by by evangelical Christianity in this country. Um, At the turn of the 20th century, that wasn't the case. Uh, Business leaders really didn't have a whole lot of interest in Christianity. Um, It it wasn't very common for folks to go to church every Sunday. We're talking about late 1800s. But the one thing that characterized Christianity the most was called the social gospel And the social gospel movement was this kind of stuff. We're talking about when workers' rights are coming up. um, Christianity was very connected to the labor movements going on in this country. Uh, Martin Luther King uh, was very influenced by the writers of the social gospel movement. And what what was happening was that workers were being told that they can strike, that they can stand up for their rights, and there was this Christian connection to it. There was this theological thing um, that was saying Uh, I mean, was looking at this kind of material and saying, we need to fight for our own equity. Um, The Bible says plenty of stuff about the evils of wealth, right? So people were pointing at wealth in this country and saying, this is wrong, this is exploitative. And so then at the turn of the century, uh, business leaders started paying theologians to come and change Christianity so that it would be more favorable to current business practices. And I'll tell you, It worked. It worked. Um and 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 it's 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 stayed that way from that point all the way until this point. Do you think that they d- took a page out of the ancient playbook when they did that because that's exactly what happened in the time of Rome when Rome Romanized <coughs> Christianity. Yeah. I mean it's exactly the same thing. Yeah. Am I right? Yeah. Um. But I mean this 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 has happened ever since the church became moment. But it became powerful though, am I right, when Rome Romanized yeah. yep. it. That's what gave it the power. Yeah. Right? Um, so.
3: Yeah. Where um, Where do you think it is being taught this, this kind of
0: relationship to Jesus Christ's teaching right now? Um, in spaces where <clears throat> there is oppression. So I'd love to say we're doing it, yeah. um, but in spaces where there's legitimate oppression, so uh, Black communities very much have this kind of relationship. Um, again, Latin America, uh, women's theology, queer theology, a, a lot of these um, minority groups who under who, who do have a faithful relationship with Christianity um, are doing this kind of work, and they've been doing it for a long time. You know. The, the, the reason it seems so unfamiliar to us is because we live in an affluent community, um, and and we are of an affluent demographic. Mm-hmm. It's a good question.
3: Well, I am Jewish, and I'm yeah. raised in a very Jewish, predominantly I live.
0: Thousand years of, of uh, history here. It's hard to quantify that in, in, in a simple, uh, you know, service mm-hmm. right here. Um, but okay. you, when you have powerful people dealing with a faith that's, I mean, so what Jesus is doing is kind of a grassroots faith. It's, it's from the bottom up, uh, start at the bottom and work your way up. That's th- that's. That takes the power source away from. It took the power source away from Rome. It took the power source away from any powerful institution. Mm-hmm. And um, you either you either co-opt it or you get swallowed up by it. I mean, Christianity for its first 300 years in Rome was spreading so quickly that Rome couldn't stop it. And so Constantine did a very shrewd thing by co-opting the faith. Um, and, 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 and then he was able to alter it. And and that same exact thing has been happening since. since. And different groups are going to do it in different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, It's interesting. So when Africans were enslaved and brought over here um, and and, and had their own faith of Africa, uh, slave slave masters forced them to become Christians. And part of that was texts in here where, like Paul says, um, slaves be obedient to your masters, right? So... So you give them a different faith. um, You tell them that their gods are false. Our God is is the real God. And and our God also says, be obedient to your slave masters. And so you you use that. And you take a people's culture away from them, yada, yada, yada. Um, But slave masters uh, worked very, very hard to make sure that that their enslaved people could not read. Because there's a lot of other stuff in the Bible about liberation and equity. (laughs) And... What ended up happening was there were um, uh, slaves who were in the house who had to learn how to read for taking care of uh, children, white children, and, and, and against their master's wishes went and read the Bible. And then not only read the Bible, started teaching other enslaved people how to read the Bible. And then we even have reports of slaves being forced to go to church uh, with, with white people, with their slave masters. And then they would go and have these secret other church services, and it was with all of the other African people, and they had their own preachers, and it was all about liberation. It was, and this is the same with Judaism, right? It was the story of Exodus. The, the Exodus story is central to a Jewish identity. It became central to enslaved people in understanding this faith that was forced on them. And, and so uh, that's exactly what happened. There, there was a lot of uh, inspiration and encouragement that came from this faith that was forced on them that ended up working against the slave masters. And I don't want to romanticize that because a lot of really bad, bad stuff happened in that process. But um, it, I don't know, it's like Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park, Life Finds a Way. You know, this really cool liberative stuff found a way. Mm-hmm. And that's because that's, that's the core of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Johnny. I do think
1: um, we're also at a time uh, because of the last four to six years, what happened politically um, and how the church or evangelicalism aligned itself with all the power yeah. and political structures Yeah. yeah. a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of Christians were seeing that and seeing it presented. Kind of for the first time, out loud and out in front, in a way that it really hasn't before. Where there, I think a lot of people are realizing this is not this is not the faith that I thought it was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you have the deconstruction movement coming out of that, and a lot of people reconsidering, rethinking, what does this mean? And, um, you know, some congregations that are completely changing what they've been teaching and what they've been understanding about the scripture and about gospel and, and all that. And I think there's a, there's a movement that's kind of boiling underneath of people who are dissatisfied. We don't want to be associated with power, right? we do not associated with yeah. money. We don't want to be associated with politics. This yeah. is what the gospel is, and this is what we've been called to, and this is what we've been. Slowly starting to, to kind of make a, a change in that direction. Yeah. Um, I'm hopeful.
0: and I and I, I also think maybe the church isn't going to survive it. Um, mm-hmm. People are leaving the church. In a, in a, it, it, there's a mass exodus from church, but it's not like they're leaving evangelical churches and coming to our church. Yeah. You know, um, they're just leaving altogether. Yeah. So like this presents a way of life. That's my argument, right? That when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, he's presenting a way of life and he's inviting people to participate in it. I would say people are absolutely doing that. They're leaving churches to do it. Um, and they're doing it in secular spaces. They're organizing outside of church and doing this work. And then so I have to ask myself as a pastor, what's more important, the survival of the church, which my job is dependent upon, or that this work is happening? Um, and and if, you know, of course, I'm going to say the work is happening. But yeah. it's painful to say that, too, at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's why I started Orthodox. And um, don't get me wrong, I think Bethania is going to be fine but the church in general, Mm -hmm. is going to take a massive hit, and it might not survive it, Mm -hmm. which is ultimately a good thing. Mm -hmm. Um, My passion as a pastor is to try and help people reorient themselves with this text because of its core function of liberation and love and inclusion and equity, not because I think people need to believe in it, not because I think this to get to heaven after they die because this is a powerful source that has led people for centuries into the spaces of fighting for liberation and inclusion and egalitarianism and equity and love and compassion and nonviolence and all of that stuff Mm -hmm. that's why I say values is an innocuous word Mm -hmm. but when you actually understand it especially understand it in the face of the world's value system and then you start to participate in the work it's very radical So I want—we're running somewhat. This happens every week. <laughs> exactly. I'm gonna go into the next value. So forgiveness and patronage. So this is Matthew chapter 18, verses 23 to 35. And I'm gonna read this quickly because it's a long one. <clears throat> for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle. Thank you, brothers. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. No worries. It's fine. It's yeah. Thank you for joining us. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began a reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his lord ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and children and all his possessions and payments to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. Remember that part right there, forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves, who owed him a hundred denarii, and seized him by the throat, and he said, Pay pay what you owe. Then this fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. (laughs) Um, So what the first slave owes the king in debt, the text says right there, um, 10,000 talents. And then do you see a little postscript next to talents Mm -hmm. if you're looking at your Bible? And if you follow that, it says down at the bottom of the page, a talent, one talent, was worth more than 15 years of wages. Wow. This slave owes his master 10,000 talents. Now, think about that in time, not money. Right? 15 years times 10,000. That's a life debt, right? That is being, that's, and that's not just, that, that debt in antiquity is going to be passed on to his children, and his children's children, and his children's children. Now, we talk about forgiveness in our day, especially within Christianity, as this individualistic forgiveness. If somebody harms you, you need to forgive them. That's all well and good. But that's not what's being talked about here. What's being talked about here is a system. Uh, another value that Rome was uh, uh, was important to Rome, but it, it's also why Rome survived for so long, was the patronage system. It's very similar to hierarchy. But the patronage system is that somebody at the top does something for, it's kind of godfather stuff, does something for someone below them, and then that person is in their debt, right? right. Patronage didn't just happen at the top, though. It also happened at the bottom. Um, For those of you that remember the story of the Good Samaritan, that's that's another story about patronage. So when the Samaritan helps the guy who's beaten on the road, the way patronage works is that the guy that was beaten up and saved is now in the Samaritan's debt. And so Jesus tells this story to not just highlight somebody who is a Samaritan who is considered um, profane, but also that the Samaritan is not seeking patronage with this, with this beaten up person. So it, the way it works at the bottom is if even someone who let's talking about the peasant class here, someone with the peasant class does something for someone below them, that patronage system still works. That person is in that debt. That's why we have two different stories here of the lord and the slave and then the slave and the slave. right? And so if you look, the second slave, he owes um, 100 denarii so, so one denarii is a day's worth of labor, right? So it's a much smaller. It's 100 days' worth of debt versus um, thousands of, of years or whatever it comes out to, right? And so Jesus is living in a world that's not only hierarchical, but it's a world where people are constantly in debt to other people. And the patronage system was sacred. You could not mess with this system. So here comes Jesus with God's value system, and he's telling his own followers, you forgive your brothers and sisters. This is not individualistic forgiveness. This is, again, about egalitarianism, and it's about releasing debt, and it's about creating a system of equity. And that's really what forgiveness means. I mean, I I can't tell you how many people come and talk to me, Pastor, I'm having such a a hard time forgiving so-and-so. And I want to say, you know, when we talk about that, great, for for individual, like, that individualistic thing, great, you know, I'll, I'll help you when I can. But we, as a society, are missing the point of forgiveness in the Bible. We are missing the value system here. Now, you think about how debt works in our society today, or think about how imprisonment works in our society today. Things that enslave people either to work or to actual confinement. Think of that value system and then what Jesus is trying to do here is trying to create a community where no one is going to be forcefully beholden to another person. Um, bail systems in our country. Bail systems are wholly corrupt, and they only harm people at the bottom. Um, you want to talk about this on a global scale. So the International Monetary Fund, will go to a country in Latin America and will tell them, oh, your nationalized industry. We want you to privatize it and let us buy it, right? right. And, and, and then they tell the people who are in charge there, the president or whoever, we're going we're gonna to let you come into our company as well. We're going to make you rich, OK? And so then they do it. And then that country goes into millions to billions of dollars of debt to the International Monetary Fund or to the United States government, or to whoever. And then the president makes out rich, takes off, and now that whole country is in debt by billions of dollars. Now, that's, that's still going on right now. Mm. The, the amount of debt that developing countries have that those people did not ask for, were not a part of that agreement, they are, they are paying off that debt with ridiculous taxes. So on a global scale, the debt system is something that um, enriches Western countries and completely ruins developing nations so that their industries can be privatized for, I'm not kidding, I mean, the foreseeable future. There's a big push. Actually, I got a degree in political science. Before I decided I wanted to be a pastor, what I wanted to do was get my master's in political science and work towards debt relief for third world countries, developing nations, where companies were just going to literally write the debt say, you don't owe us this anymore, you didn't sign the agreement, etc. It's gone. So, looking at this kind of stuff in a systemic way, and then participating in it, is radical. Okay, I'm going to go on to divorce and feminism. This one's a tough one. This is chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he cured them. Some Pharisees came to him, and to test him, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that the one who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command us to give a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her? He said to them, it was because you were so hard-hearted that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for unchastity and marries another commits adultery. His disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man and his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can accept this teaching, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. Now, at a surface level, that sounds very patriarchal and uh, abusive, right? Um, And this text has been used through, I mean, centuries and centuries of marriage to force women to stay in abusive relationships problem is, it's not being understood in its own context. Now, granted, Jesus is dealing with a world that was immensely patriarchal, and he couldn't just come out and say, hey, uh, women shouldn't be property anymore, and they should be able to inherit their families' businesses and work for themselves and yada, yada, yada. Everybody would have said this guy's lost his damn mind, and no one would have ever paid attention to him. Jesus is operating in the confines of his own society 2,000 years ago. Now, what's really going on here is there was a big debate, um, and, and scholars have discovered this by looking at other Jewish texts, but there was a very big debate going on. There were two big rabbis, one named Shammai and another named Hillel. And Shammai said, You can't divorce your wife except for adultery. And Hillel was saying, You could divorce your wife for anything. If she, and it's literally written if she burns your dinner, you could divorce her. Now, the problem is, what happens to a woman if her husband divorces her in this time? Ostracized. Nothing. Women were completely beholden to their father's first and then their husband's second. Women were considered property as well. Now, all of that's wrong. I'm not trying to say that that's right. What I am saying here, though, is that Jesus is a feminist, and it's kind of hard to get there. But when you look at this in (laughs) context— If a man were to divorce his wife because she burned his dinner, odds are she would have to turn to that prostitution and and make a very, very squalor living. By by telling them, no, men need to stay married to their wives, what he's saying is that – or what he's getting at is that women need to make make sure that women are economically secure. That is probably the most feminist thing that Jesus could have done Hmm. in his day. I think if Jesus were here today, um, Jesus would probably be a woman. So it has to be understood in its own context. Um, And I I wrote some of this down, I wrote the the debate between uh, Allah and Shemai for just so (coughs) we can have it. Um, You know, women what still make 77 cents to every was in seminary, women were 56% of my class. So 10 years before that, men were, were most represented in, in graduate programs. Um, when I was in seminary, when I was in graduate school, it had already switched, and it was just growing. So women, women are seeking higher education at higher levels than men are. Women in the church today still have a horrendous time finding churches that that's in our church that ordains women. Bethania and St. Mark are the only two churches in the, val- in the valley that allow women to be pastors. Are you in the United Methodist? Huh? We don't have a Methodist church in the valley. We don't. No. Nope. Oh. Um, so I, 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 can, I mean, it's obvious. It's obvious. I could go on and just talk about the the hierarchy and their the women and not realize. And there's more that I could do with Paul here. Um, the, the kids are being brought in, so you don't have to. Yeah. Um, All this to say that the egalitarianism of the Jesus system also extends to uh, gender equality as well. And then finally, uh, wealth. I'll read this quickly too. Thanks, Diana. Thank you. Then someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? I want you to remember eternal life right there, okay? What good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, also you shall love your neighbor as yourself. the young man said to him, I have kept all these, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you wish to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come follow me. When the young man heard this word, he went away grieving. Possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astounded and said that who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but for God all things are There's no way to mince words there. That's Jesus condemning wealth. Um, And again, you have to look at this in a systemic way. Jesus isn't saying rich people are bad, or rich people can't be Christians, or anything like that. Jesus is talking about a system, however, like we talked about at the beginning of this, where wealth is being concentrated more and more to the top. There is a change that happened here. So so the English I read, someone came in and said, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? There's no Greek word for eternal life. It doesn't exist. What the Greek actually says is, teacher, what good deed must I do to embrace the aeon ton aeon, which means the age of the age. English doesn't know how to translate that age of the age into the proper connotation. Not only that. When the church did become powerful and started pushing this whole afterlife narrative, eternal life became a part of that. What do we want? We want to live forever, right? Well, you can do that if you blah, blah, blah. That's not what aeon ton aeon means, though. Aeon ton aeon means the wholeness of this age. How can I embrace life for all that it's worth, essentially? How can I embrace whatever you think the greatest gift of life? here and now. And what Jesus is saying, essentially, is wealthy people tend to be more materialistic with this age than compassionate. Uh, This is kind of like wealth becoming your god type of a thing. Um, This has nothing to do with the afterlife, though. It has everything to do with how you live in this life. Now, don't get me wrong, Jesus had wealthy people bankrolling his movement. Um, One of King Herod's assistant's wife is mentioned in the Gospels. She's a follower of Jesus. She's wealthy. She's bankrolling his system. Paul references benefactors in some of his letters. He had wealthy people bankrolling his movement. There there was that space. This isn't necessarily to condemn individuals who have wealth. This is condemning a system where wealth is being concentrated at the top. Now, We're out of time, but I don't have to make a big argument here to say that our relationship with wealth today is probably what it was in the time of Rome, right? Um, The big thing for me as a pastor is Christianity's uh, part in that. Christianity's part in making sure that um, wealth is not condemned. Uh, So, a, a value system here imagine if you had the church saying, Um, wealth concentration or income inequality is a big deal and we need to work to fix it I mean that would change overnight but instead the church has decided to make individualistic messaging uh, personal relationship with God and getting to heaven after you die that's the most important
2: Easier to convince people of that than conventional social justice. Yeah,
0: I agree. Um, so, like I said, I wanted to end with this topic, but I want you to realize that values, as a topic, is a very radical thing. Um, here we are talking about it. Here we are being intellectual about it. Right? This is all in our minds. We're talking about it. Um, I don't have the answer in how you switch this to uh, a- actual work. Um, I'm, I'm a very political person. Sometimes I get troubled by church members who say, well, I, you know, the church has become too political. And I'm just like, wow. Like, Jesus was so political. Um, and his politics was about a concentration on the bottom and working your way up. And the church needs to be that way, too. Um, whatever anybody does with their own faith is their prerogative. As a pastor of a Christian faith, I feel it's my role to say, look, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus... This is what it means. It's not about belief. It's not about getting to heaven after you die. It's about understanding God's value system, the kingdom of heaven, and understanding our world's value system, and actually working to try to change it. And that takes knowledge of the systemics of our society. That takes knowledge of um, uh, the politics of our own municipal town here. I mean, it takes a lot of hard work and. But that's what it is to be a Christian. It has nothing to do with belief and everything to do with how you operate in this world and how